I hope that uh, the words, those, those words, uh, were not just words on a screen or something that came out of your mouth, but that it was truly the intent of your heart, that in, in, in and through Christ, uh, there is everything you need. And uh, certainly, as Emma mentioned, as she was introducing the, uh, the, the previous song, uh, there are times in which it's difficult to trust that, right? Uh, we're faced with uh, challenges, we're faced with questions and problems and struggles that seem at times insurmountable. And we acknowledge that. that is, there, there's no shame in feeling like you're at, the, uh, at your wit's end or be, it's beyond your comprehension. But looking to the one uh, is so key and so essential. We, uh, as, when I say we, I'm, I'm speaking on behalf of the elders. On, on several occasions, we, and I, I serve with uh, seven other uh, men on the elder team here at Calvary, we have been so appreciative of your prayers for us as we've looked to God and, and tried to hear his word and his voice and his will and discern that and uh, steps moving forward as we, as we move, you know, the, from, the, from the last several months when, we, when things all kind of went into severe shutdown mode in mid-March and up and through today where we're now having the outdoor services. And so we've, a, we've, we've asked you to be praying for us as we uh, work toward what's next. And I just want to say thank you because many of you have expressed that uh, to me and to us uh, via email, via text, via, uh, via well, personal conversations. You've shared with us that you're doing just that. And we, can't, we just can't thank you enough. We're so appreciative. And we, that's not some perfunctory response that the thing that we're supposed to say, we really are genuinely thankful for the fact that our, our family, our church family is uh, supporting us and praying for us. And we wanted to just share with you uh, at least a little bit of info for what's next. Um, we don't have all the details worked out yet, but we want you to know that starting on September 27th, so if you think of the, the calendar, next week is uh, Labor Day weekend, that's the 6th, Sunday is the 6th, so 6th, 13th, 20th, we will continue in this format for the next three weeks uh, with out, uh, outdoor services as well as our streaming online. And then beginning on September 27th, that is our target date to transition to, to indoor gatherings. And so there will be lots more details coming to you and you'll have questions about what, what protective measures are going to be in place and, and, and what, what's the expectations for all the different things. Those details will be coming to you, but we wanted you to know that beginning September 27th, we will be transitioning toward indoor services on that, on that weekend. We will be continuing uh, to, yeah, great, yeah, that's great. It's good to get a little bit of applause. We don't mind that, yeah. It's been a difficult time, as you can imagine, as we, as we walk through all of this. Uh, so thank you. And uh, for those of you who are watching online, if that, and, and if that's your plan uh, to continue with that, we want you to know that those online uh, streaming services will still be available uh, September 27th and beyond. So uh, you can count on that as well. So thanks so much. Uh, and continue to pray uh, for the elder team, the ministry staff, and for volunteer staff as well as we figure out that ministry programming rhythm and offerings that will be coming uh, beginning uh, that weekend. So thanks so much. That was kind of your, your little news and update. Um, as you know, if you've been here either online or in person for the last several weeks, we, uh, we started uh, uh, and it was, it's been good to kind of re-engage with a, with a study of, of the book of the Bible and we, we dove into the Gospel of John. So we spent the last three weeks in John chapter 1. Remember John 1, 1 said, in the beginning was the Word. And that Word was an important word. It's the word, the Greek word logos. It, it seems to indicate uh, this, this ideal, this principle, this 
presence, this uh, supernatural presence and power that the Greeks believed was, was almost like Almost like John is introducing it as this undefined greatness and majesty. But he's about to define it, and he's about to connect it with the existence of God in that chapter 1 and with the incarnation of God in his Son, Jesus Christ. So he says that Jesus is, you think of Logos as this this principle, this ideology, this kind of abstract power, but Logos, Jesus is the Logos. He goes on to say that in Jesus is life, and in Jesus is the light. And we saw then after we, John introduced us and began to connect us to who Jesus was and, and all of the, his attributes and features, he introduced us to another John, not John himself, but John the Baptist or John the Baptizer. In verse 7, he says he came, that meaning John, uh, John the Baptizer, came as a witness to testify about the light, about the life, about the Logos, about Jesus, so that all might believe through him. And that was the ministry of John. It was pointing people toward Jesus in the ministry of John the baptizer. In verse 29, we saw that John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, attaching to Jesus this, this other title. So Jesus in that chapter 1, is, he is Logos, he is life, he is light, and he is the Lamb of God. John the baptizer repeats that very same thing the next day when he says, uh, refers to Jesus as the Lamb of God. And two of his disciples in verse 37 heard John say that, and they, and they began following Jesus. Jesus noticed at one point that they were following him, and he asked them, what are you looking for? And that took us then into a section of Scripture that we looked at last week where Jesus begins to invite people to follow him. He invited Andrew, who went and got his brother Simon whom Jesus changed his name to Peter. Most likely the other uh, disciple of John, uh, John the Baptizer's, was John, the author of this gospel. And then we also saw Jesus inviting Philip, and then Philip bringing Nathaniel. So Andrew, John, Simon, Philip, and Nathaniel begin to attach themselves to Jesus at some level. Most likely it's not a permanent attachment yet from what we learn in, in some of the other gospels, but they are at least at some level beginning to follow Jesus at some sort. And so in that, in that chapter 1, we saw the identity of Jesus, we saw the, the ministry of, of, of John the Baptist, and then the ministry of Jesus begin to develop as he begil, begins to, to build this team of followers. Well, we turn the page from chapter 1 to chapter 2, and that's where we're at today. So if, you've got your, if you happen to have a hard copy Bible with you, if you have your phone or, or tablet and you want to uh, find John chapter 2, I'm going to be using the Christian Standard Bible Translation so you're happy to follow along with the same one that I'm using or whatever one uh, you would prefer. And just before we get started there uh, in, in chapter 2, let's take a minute and, uh, and just pray, okay? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much. We, we need you so desperately. We think of problems that exist in our world, large and small. We think of systemic things like what we're experiencing in our country and the significant uh, social unrest involved around racial issues, Lord. And, and that's, uh, we feel at times powerless to see uh, something change that reflects your heart, not just the will of certain individuals. We see uh, issues and struggles with the pandemic. We, we see how those have impacted our lives at home and at work and in our church. And again, we feel at times powerless to do to know what to do we feel at times like king jehoshaphat prays, uh, felt and prayed lord when he said uh, we don't know what to do 
But we do want to say like he said, our eyes are on you. And so God, as we, as we st- take steps forward in all these things, as we take steps forward together as your people, as your family, as your body, representing your kingdom, we pray, God, that our agenda would be your agenda and not our own. We pray too, God, in this moment for, for our time in the word that you would open up our eyes. We don't, we don't want to have just a little bit more information about some specific thing that Jesus said or a certain cultural nuance or historical attribute of the ancient Near East. But instead, we want to hear from you. We want you to be our teacher. And so open our eyes, open our ears, open our minds, open our very wills to what you want to do in us and through us and with us today. We pray all of those things in the great name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Chapter 2, Gospel of John. Let's check out those first two verses. John was inspired by God to write this. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana of Galilee. And the first question you might ask is, okay, third day, what did John mean by that? Does he mean third day of the week? Most likely that's not the case. In the ancient Near East, uh, women who had not been married before typically were married on, their wedding would have taken place on a Wednesday. A woman who was a widow and was getting married for a second time, her wedding would have typically taken place on a Thursday. So John is most likely not meaning this as the day of the week because that would have been a Tuesday, right? Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, third day of the week. It's probably in reference to the third day after Jesus met Philip. So if you go back to chapter one, and John has used this phrase, the next day, the next day, the next day. When he says the third day, it's probably in reference to the last big event that occurred, and that was the meeting with Philip, and then the subsequent meeting with Nathaniel um, uh, after that. So, so um, af- when, when, after that has occurred, on the third day, we have a wedding that took place in Cana of Galilee. Second sentence in there, it says Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding as well. Now, there's lots of speculation about why Jesus and his disciples and his mom was there. Now, there are a couple of suggestions. Some have said, well, it was very common in the ancient Near East for teachers, rabbis, spiritual leaders to be kind of invited to social gatherings. Kind of like something that I found out when I became a pastor. I kind of had this unwritten invitation to every party and gathering that that existed in the church. Sometimes it actually was a little bit of an expectation that you be at every one of those things, and that was new to me as a a 23-year-old guy leading a church, not knowing too much because I didn't really grow up in the church. It was something new to me, and and so that doesn't exist as much anymore, maybe a little bit in certain settings, Uh, but that was definitely a part of Jesus' culture. But Probably that's not the reason he's there. Jesus' teaching and rab, uh, you know, his rabbinic ministry wasn't super well defined yet. And so that's probably not the reason they're there. Some have said Mary was probably one of the persons who was helping to host it. Some have said because of, of the presence of Jesus there, his disciples and his mother, um, later we're going to actually see it's implied in, in verse 12 that maybe even his brothers were there with him. So some have suggested most likely it's a good friend of, Jesus, of Mary's family, Mary and Jesus' family. Uh, it's maybe it's a, an extended family member. And again, because of some of Mary's actions and some of the ways she's described, it's suggested that she's actually helping with the wedding. You know, you've probably been one of those people at a wedding where you're kind of responsible for one aspect of it, and so you kind of have a vested interest in it. Others have asked, well, where is Joseph? Uh, Sadly, and again, not for sure, we don't know for sure, but 
Sadly, most likely jo- Joseph, uh, J- Jesus' fa- earthly father, adoptive father Joseph, is no longer living at this point. So that's probably the reason that he's not mentioned. So probably because of the connection to the family, maybe because Mary was one of the hosts there, we have Mary, Jesus, and his disciples all there at the wedding. Now, that's one of the things that we've kind of missed out on this year, isn't it? This summer, uh, some of you might ha- have had a wedding that you were scheduled to attend or a family member was going to have. And if it wasn't postponed, it may have been kind of significantly changed. I know my, uh, my middle child, my oldest son, Eli, and his wife, Autumn, were married in November. They live in Milwaukee. They were married last November, but it was kind of like a, a parents-only thing. We went out to Milwaukee. I was able to officiate the wedding. It was great. They got married. Uh, and uh, parents were there, a couple of friends. But we were planned to have the big celebration, not yesterday, but the, the Saturday before that. And so that got postponed because of this. But certainly we're looking forward now to next August when we can celebrate it and almost celebrate their wedding and their two-year anniversary almost all in the same day. <laughs> it's kind of like the, the, the reality of COVID, right? But you know how weddings are. They're an incredibly big, great, grand celebration. Now, I'd like for you to just think, probably it wasn't this year, but maybe last summer, maybe last winter, at some point, I want you to get in your minds the greatest, most dynamic, celebratory, fun party of a wedding that you have ever been to. Just get that in your mind. Think of the names of the people, where it was at, the venue, you know, how you rocked it on the dance floor, all that kind of stuff, whatever it was. Think of all that stuff. Now, If you're thinking about what's going on here, you're going to have to multiply it. I can say that with actual genuine authenticity, not just because these parties that were had were extreme, but because they lasted seven days. So you got to at least multiply it by seven. Whatever you experienced it, experienced, you got to multiply it by seven, and it's probably much more than seven. You see, the wedding day for that family regardless of their financial means, regardless of, whether, of, what, of, of their social uh, standing, it was the day of their life. They scrimped, they saved, they sacrificed, they planned. If they didn't have a lot of money, what money they had went into this wedding. The, gro- the, the groom, the couple, <laughs> the, 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 bride, the bride and groom, they were treated as a king and queen. They were royalty for the day and for that week. They were held in high esteem. Everything revolved around them. So when you think of this, what's happening here, I just want you to have this phrase in mind. It is a party. It is a blowout. It is one that is maybe going to take, and we're going to learn here in a second, we're going to take a few maybe days or weeks to recover from this kind of party that's existing, okay? But here's what happens. So this party's going on, this seven-day event. Jesus and his friends are invited to it. They're throwing this party for for the bride and groom. They're celebrating. And then someone comes to Jesus and says, hey, man, we got a little problem. Here's what the problem is. Verse 2, or I'm sorry, verse 3. When the wine ran out, Jesus' mother told him, they don't have any wine. Now you read that, and you're like, okay, the wine runs out. Party's over. That is not how it works in these weddings. That is, instead of it being, oh yeah, the, the, the band's done, you know, they start turning on the lights, uh, the food ran out, right, you know, the, the wine runs out, the, all the stuff, you know, the party's over. That's not the case here. Instead, this would have been 
a great embarrassment to those running the wedding. They would have even been viewed as, man, you ain't got no money. You don't even have enough money for us to party for seven days? The wine ran out? Or it would have been seen as incredibly thoughtless. Now, let me just say right now, just to, to assuage any fears for everyone and, and, and especially parents, this, is, this, this story is not a referendum on the use of alcoholic beverages. Those are, there's lots of other things that, that you can consult in Scripture about how you choose to process that decision on how to use alcoholic beverages. That's not what this is about. This is simply a telling of a story that happened in the ancient culture to give us a window into what was happening. So Mary comes to Jesus probably because she has a a little sense of responsibility. And she says, listen, we got a problem. It's actually more than a little problem. The wine is gone. Now, wine was a not it was it was literally and some and also figuratively figuratively. It stood for for blessing. It stood for celebration. It stood for good times. There's lots of scripture in the Old Testament that connects wine to celebration. In fact, the rabbis had a, had a saying at the time when Jesus lived. One of the sayings they had was this, without wine, there is no joy. <laughs> that was a saying, a very common saying of, of, the, of, of the rabbis at that time. So when the wine ran out, it was a big deal. So Mary goes to Jesus and says, listen, the wine's gone. Now, his response to her is somewhat interesting. Look at verse 4. He says, what has this concern of yours? See that phrase, concern of yours, that some people suggest that's more evidence that Mary has some sense of responsibility. Again, probably a host. What has this concern of yours to do with me, woman? Jesus asked. Now, I know it it sounds a little bit disrespectful, right? And in one sense, it sounds a little bit flippant, sounds a little bit dismissive. I don't think that's what's happening here. Now, it isn't absolutely atypical for a child to address their mother in this way. It would be similar to someone, to uh, the way in which we would say ma'am to someone. Now, it's not the closest term of endearment, but it's it's not a disrespectful term either, okay? When Jesus says this to his mother, what has this concern of yours to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Some people have suggested that Jesus is trying to say this. This is the wedding's problem, not mine. This is not ours. You don't bear the responsibility of this. They bear the responsibility of this. So what, what's going on here? Some scholars have suggested that what Jesus is trying to help Mary to understand is he works according to his father's timetable, not human events. He is beginning to maybe teach her this idea. Remember, Jesus said, I didn't come to speak my own words. I came to speak the words of my father. I didn't come to do my own will. I came to do the will of my father. So some have suggested that what's happening here in Jesus' response is he is beginning to set the tone. I'm here to do not your work, not the work of someone else, but I'm here to do the work of my father. And the work of my father isn't about this. And so that could be the, what, what he's trying to communicate to Mary. There also are some scholars who suggest when Jesus said, use this phrase, my hour is not yet come, that there's some grammatical evidence that would suggest that Jesus is saying, I'm going to help, just not right now. In other words, okay, I'll get to it, is what some people have suggested Jesus is implying. So possibly because uh, according, to, according to some, Jesus is saying he will, he's eventually willing to help, Possibly because 
Mary was just unwilling to give up. She goes and finds the people and she says to them basically this, hey, I know a guy. <laughs> we got this problem. I know somebody who could do something about it. And maybe what's in Mary's heart is, and she heard what he said to him. Or I'm sorry. She heard what he said to her. I say that the right way. And after that, she's maybe in her heart is, if anyone can do something about this problem, he can. And so she goes to the servants in verse 5, and she says this. Do whatever he tells you. Do whatever he tells you. Now, this isn't the main thrust of the talk today, but I think that phrase, do whatever he tells you, would be kind of a good one for us to live, live with this week. As we think about the different challenges that we're facing in our own lives and in the world, even in, in, in the midst of ministry and churches, all that kind of stuff, maybe this phrase that Mary utters to the servants, do whatever he tells you, would be one for a, good, a good one for us to reflect on throughout the week as we face the different things that we face Hey, maybe I should do what Jesus tells me to do, right? So Mary is at some level demonstrating, I think, some level of faith, okay? And in asking the servants to do that, she's asking that from them from so, uh, some level of obedience. Now, notice that Mary doesn't ask Jesus to do anything in particular. She said, hey, we got a problem. They're out of wine. She hears his response. She says, well, she doesn't say, hey, Jesus, I need you to fix it. I need you to do this particular thing. But at some level, she demonstrates faith. She goes to the servants and says, listen, do whatever he tells you to do. So what's her expectation? Do, what, is she expecting something significant to happen? Remember that most likely Jesus had not done any prior miracles. Now, it doesn't, now we can't say that maybe with definitiveness, right? Because we don't know everything that happened in Jesus' life prior to this time. But from, from what John indicates, it seems like Jesus probably hadn't done any other miracles. So maybe she wasn't even expecting that to happen. Maybe she thought he had some sort of connection that could address the problem. For whatever reason, she said to those servants, do whatever he tells you. So John gives us this little kind of narrative detail here. Then in verse 6, if you look at that, it says, Now six stone waters had been set there for Jewish purification. Each contained 20 or 30 gallons. And those uh, were filled 20, 30 gallons of water, just to be clear. These were, um, these were jars, stone jars, that would have been set up at, at a particular place at the party in this one room. And they would have been used for ceremonial washings of the hands and feet. Now, there would have been the biggest uh, jars, like are, are mentioned here, that held 20, 30 gallons of water each. They would have been used for kind of like the general population, the general guests, all the kind of the, the normal, regular folk, Okay. And then there would have been some smaller jars that would have been reserved for the washings of the hands and feet of kind of like the honored guests at the wedding, the, the, the bride, the groom, their family, the wedding party, some, any other honored guests, extended relatives, really good friends, all those kind of people. So all of those jars would have been, uh, had most likely water in them. They, some of it might have been used. We don't know what day of the wedding celebration this is. If, it happened, if they ran out of wine on the, on the first day or the third day or the fifth day, but like I said, it's a seven-day celebration. So at some point, it ran out. John says, gives us this, uh, this, this, uh, you know, this uh, image of, of these stone jars. So Jesus goes to the servants in verse 7, and he says to those servants, the same ones that his mom had said to them, do whatever he tells you. Jesus goes to them and says, fill the jars with water. Verse 7 says, they did that. Verse 8, he says, now draw out some water and take it to the head waiter. 
And they did that. So when we pick up the, fir- the story in verse 10, so they draw out the water, they w- walk to the head waiter with this, with this something, it's in some sort of thing holding this liquid. In verse 9, they get to the head waiter, the head waiter tastes the water after it had become wine. We don't even have any words from Jesus, we don't have any, any, any indication of what exactly he did or said. It was, he simply said, fill it with water, now ladle some out, get some out, give it to the head waiter. They do that. He doesn't know where, where it came from. The servants know where, that, that the water had come, where that water had come from, right? Because they had either poured out the water that was in there and refilled them. Maybe they topped them off, or maybe they were empty and they had to fill them up completely. In verse 10, then, he goes to the groom and he says, what in the world is your family thinking? He, verse 10, check it out. Everyone sets out the fine wine first. Then, after the people were drunk, the inferior but you guys have kept the best wine till now. Everybody's wasted. Why are you bringing out the good stuff now? Again, please understand, this is not a verse that you can proof text and say, see, it's okay to get drunk. That's not what this is teaching. Just because Jesus doesn't correct the drunkenness of the people who are there, that's not somehow him legitimizing that. That's not what this story is about. Again, this is a window into the ancient culture of what's happening at a wedding, and Jesus has a particular purpose in mind with what he's going to do. But the head waiter's like, I know how these things work. When everybody still has their taste buds pretty good and everything, and they're just getting to the party, and it's the first couple days, we give them the good stuff. Now, I'm not a wine connoisseur. Some of you might be. Some of you might be experts in fine wine. You might have your favorite wine, and then you might have that stuff that's just kind of swill that's for a few dollars a bottle or something like that, right? You know the difference. I, I, again, I'm not, I'm not a big wine drinker guy. But this head waiter had been to parties. He knew that this was the opposite of what happens. Usually, it was the good stuff first, and then the, and then the bad stuff. And by the way, depending on the financial means of the people hosting the party, it was very common in the ancient world for wine to be watered down. It would be watered down sometimes with two, three, even four parts water. Okay? In fact... That might have been one of the things that Mary was thinking might be a solution. Whatever, if they have a little bit left, maybe we can water it down because they've been drinking so long they won't notice it anyway. Jesus doesn't do that, right? He turns it into this fine wine. Why does he do it? Why he does it is the last major phrase that really is the main point of the story. Jesus does this because it's a sign of things to come. John mentions there in verse 11, the very first, uh, first sentence of verse 11. Jesus did this. Why did Jesus do this? Why did he respond to Mary's request in the way he did? Why did he act in the way he did? Why did he do this thing that he did? Jesus did this, John says, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee. And you say, well, what's so significant about that? Well, in the book of John, the gospel of John, John mentions seven signs that are all trying to prove one thing. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is divine. This is the first of those seven signs. You see, in, in, the, in, the, in the Gospels, there's a couple of different words for miracles. One of the most commonly used words is dunamis. Uh, we get our word dynamite from that. It, it, it's it's uh, emphasis is on power and on, on capacity and explosiveness. And that's oftentimes used in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But John doesn't use that word. John uses the word simeon. And the word simeon is, it means an indication, a mark, 
a, a token, a sign. It's something by which a person or thing is distinguished from others and is known. And again, John is trying to show them that Jesus is divine. So this is the first of those seven signs. If you look at how that verse finishes, Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee. And as he did it, verse second, and second sentence of verse 11, he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Why did Jesus do this thing that seems like he was a little bit reluctant to do? Because he revealed his glory in doing it, is what John says. The word revealed is, is the Greek, in, in English, is the Greek word phanerao. And phanerao means to, to make something manifest, to make it visible, uh, to make something known. Uh, and, and it specifically refers to something that had been previously uh, hidden or unknown. And so it's taking something that's hidden and unknown and saying, look, here it is. Here it said, John says, Jesus' glory, which was, had been hidden, had not yet been revealed. Now he's making it plain. He's making it visible. He's making it actual. He wants it to be plainly recognized. Jesus is doing this for a small, select few people. The servants knew that he did it. I would suggest that his mom knew that he did it. And his disciples obviously evidently knew that he did it because what does it say? His disciples believed in him. Jesus began then this, this movement of being plainly recognized, thoroughly seen, and completely understood as something different than anyone else. That's the story of the wedding at Cana in Galilee. Jesus taking something very simple and beginning to show us a sign of things to come. Jesus taking something that was used as ceremonial washings and saying, that's gone and a new wine is here. It's a reversal. Jesus taking the sadness, there is no wine, to the joy. We got some good stuff. Jesus seeing the natural problem and fixing it with a supernatural solution. Jesus helping us to see that we need to come to the end of our natural resources so that we can begin, have a new beginning again in that supernatural realm. Jesus showing us that where there is a problem, he is the solution. Jesus is showing us that where human rituals fail, divine sacrifice succeeds. Jesus showing us that what we would expect is, wow, embarrassment, humiliation, the party's over. Jesus infusing that with wonder by doing something that no one would expect, of course, bringing out this fine wine. So the point of, of why, why, this, why this miracle happens and why John tells us about it is so I would suggest to you so that we could deepen our faith in him. That's exactly what began to happen with these new followers of Jesus. He revealed to them his actual identity. Remember we were talking about last week about how the importance and the, and the power of revelation that when we come to see Jesus for who he really is, it changes our life. Many of you sitting here today, and some of you as well watching online, have come to understand the truth that Jesus is the way, and it changed your life, right? What did John say? He came to his own, and his own received him not. But to those who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave them the right to be the children of God. So what Jesus' agenda is, is all about helping people to come to faith and trust and belief in him. And that's what's happening for a few of his followers, maybe a few of those servants and his mom as Jesus 
changes that water into wine. So as we encounter this story today, as we think about its impact on our life, the thing that I would invite all of us to consider is this. How is it that Jesus, in making himself known to you through his word, through his presence in the Holy Spirit, through his presence in the community of faith, how is Jesus inviting you as he reveals himself to you in and through his word, his spirit, and his family? How is he inviting you to take a deeper step of faith in him? As we walk through problems as a society, as we navigate difficult times related to a global pandemic, as we deal with fallout of things that are happening in our families and in our workplaces, how is Jesus, through making himself manifest to you in the same way that he manifests himself to his disciples at that wedding party in Cana of Galilee, how is he in likewise inviting us to more deeply trust him, to put our faith not in the agendas that happen in the human mind, but the agenda that happens in the, in the throne room of heaven itself as revealed in and through Jesus, God incarnate, his word, which is God's gift to us. Let's reflect on, again, as he is revealing himself to us, how we can trust him more deeply with our lives, with our relationships, with our future, with our economics, with everything that we are. That's always Jesus' agenda for everything he does is that something similar could be said. He revealed his glory and his disciples, his followers, his people, his family. They believed in him. They trusted in him. They had faith in him. The worship team is going to wrap us up with a final song today as they're coming up and preparing to lead us in that. Uh, I'm going to pray. Uh, if you're going to go ahead and stand for that song, why don't you stand now as I pray? If you're going to remain seated, go ahead and do that. But if you are going to stand, stand with me as I pray before they lead us. Father God, we thank you. We thank you for this, uh, this event that occurred. This window into not just the ancient Near East, but this window into the life of your son and his heart. We thank you, Lord, for what we see him do and how we see him work and how his agenda was that his glory would be revealed, that to a small group of people, they would come to know him as he actually is, not just the son of Mary and Joseph, not just the son of a carpenter, not just a, a guy from Nazareth from where nothing good actually came, some thought. We thank you, Lord, that you have revealed to us your true identity in him. And we pray, God, that the result of that revelation that we've experienced in and through your word and your spirit and even in the, in the as evidenced in your family, the church, uh, the body of Christ, the family of God, even that, God, may it drive us toward a deeper faith in you. Help us to not trust in our own agendas and in our own ways. Help us not, Lord, to walk in the way that we think is right, but instead to walk in the way of faith, that that too could bring you glory as we see your glory as manifest in the person of your son, Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.